Welcome back, ladies, after Christmas. Um, I thought since it's been so long, well, it's only been, what, two weeks, um, since we've been here, let's do a really quick review of chapter 12 so that we remember the context of what we're studying. We have to keep the whole big story in mind. So remember there was, that's really loud, Andrea, there was a dinner given for Jesus. Mary anointed Jesus' feet with an expensive ointment. Little did she know she was preparing the Passover lamb for slaughter. We saw Jesus' unbelief, Judas' unbelief. Excuse me, there's going to be a lot of Judas and Jesus here, and let's hope I keep them straight. Judas had seen the same signs He had witnessed the power of Jesus, he had heard his teaching, and yet he didn't believe. Do you see the contrast between Mary and Judas? When John writes, he often puts two characters side by side so that we will compare them. She gave a gift that was of high value. She was focused on Jesus, on love, on sacrifice, And then there was Jesus. I'm Judas. I'm going to do that the whole time. Judas, who was self-centered and a thief. There was a plot to kill Lazarus because many were believing in Jesus. And Lazarus was living proof of that miracle. And remember that believing is a key word in John. You remember the purpose statement that Teresa's told us? several times found in John 20, 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, John didn't give many details of Jesus' trip to Jerusalem leading up to the Holy Week. The other Gospels record that he went through Jericho, he healed a blind man, he met Zacchaeus, a wee little man, a wee little man was he. The triumphal entry is recorded in all four Gospels, but only John mentioned the palm branches. I didn't know that. The rulers were freaked out because the whole world was going after him. They thought they, at that point, they thought they had failed in their mission to get rid of Jesus because he was getting more and more popular. But by the end of the week, they have to be gloating, thinking they had victory. The crowds thought their political Messiah had arrived. There were some Greeks, probably Gentile proselytes, that were seeking Jesus. So the rulers' words were true. The whole world was going after him. Not just Jews, but now also Gentiles. Then there was a turning point. Up to now, we've heard it's not his time, it's not his hour. But now it had come. There was a voice from heaven. We saw the unbelief of the Jews that the Old Testament had prophesied. There were some authorities who did believe, but they feared speaking up. So these events, the anointing, the triumphal entry, the seeking Greeks, we have to see these in the context of the cross. It was Israel's hour of decision. Many rejected him. Some believed, but were keeping silent. The cross is now a few hours away, 
Israel's rejection of Jesus as Messiah fulfilled prophecy, and it is paving the way for his work on the cross and for the salvation of the Greeks who were seeking him. Now, John doesn't cover many things after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem because they're not fitting into his purpose for writing. There was another clearing of the temple. Jesus is questioned by the Jewish rulers in the temple. Some people were liking him. The leaders were trying to trap him. They questioned his authority and turned the crowd against him. Jesus told some parables. The Pharisees tried to trap him by asking about paying tribute to Caesar. The Sadducees asked about the resurrection. He blasted the rulers for their unrighteousness and for laying burdens on the people. He predicted the destruction of Jerusalem and end times. The rulers plotted his death. Judas bargained with his rulers, with the rulers, to betray Jesus. And finally, we get to the evening before the crucifixion. So chapters 13 to 17 contain his private teaching to the 12 or the 11 in the upper room and possibly on the way to Gethsemane. He was preparing them for leadership. So as we jump into chapter 13, let me open in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Pray that you would use your word to speak to our hearts. Let your truth sink down deep into our hearts, into our souls. Let us walk away changed people after encountering your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So the main point today is, is Jesus your rabbi? Is he your teacher or is he your Lord? Let's remember that as we go through here. Verse 1, chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. There is so much in that one little verse. Jesus knew his hour had come. His divinity is on display. His omniscience is pointed out. His knowledge of all. You want to know how I remember those um, O words? Omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. When I look at the word omniscience, it looks like omni-science. Science takes knowledge, right? So all-knowing. Omnipotent, potent, looks like power, all-powerful. Man, omnipresence, easy, all-present, he's present everywhere. So being omniscient, he knew his hour had come. How often have we read, my hour has not come, the hour is coming. He knew his mission. He knew the timing, and the timing for that mission is coming to fruition. Jesus had a keen sense of timing, and it was God's timing. Isn't this an area where we often fail miserably? We are prone to get ahead of God. We tend to be impatient, ready to rush into things, try to move things along on our schedule, 
there's probably a little bit of a pride issue to think we know the best way to do things, or we lag behind God. We have other things that we desire to do first, prone to put things off until it's a more convenient time. We all need to pray that God will make us more sensitive to his timing. Now, the word world here in the Greek is cosmos, and it is the mass of lost humanity. And it's remember, it's important to remember what the word world means here in John, because it will affect how we understand Jesus' word. And this word cosmos is used 40 times in chapters 13 to 17. He's going to talk a lot about the lost humanity. It's a very key word. Jesus was about to leave lost humanity, and he loved his own who were living in the midst of the rest of lost humanity. He loved them to the end. And the end doesn't refer to a point of time, but that he loved them without limit. He loved them completely. He loved them to the uttermost. He knew the excruciating death he was about to face, and yet his concern was on those he loved. If we were about to experience crucifixion, don't you think we would be anxious and stressing? He focused on returning to the Father and training the disciples to live without him. That is great love. He loved his own. He looked at his disciples and called them his own. They were his own because he chose them. He gave himself to them and for them. As Jesus followers today, we are also his own. We are his own sheep. Hebrews 2 tells us we are his brothers or sisters. Ephesians 5 tells us we are his own bride. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us we are his own body. Isn't that astounding? We are his own. Despite the disciples' past faltering, their present flaws, their future failures, he loved them. He loved them despite their stinking feet. He didn't see them just in their present vulnerabilities, but also in their eventual victories. And aren't you thankful that he sees you that way too? He loves you in spite of what you've done in the past. He loves you in spite of how you're sinning today. Just as he loved his disciples completely, beloved, he loves you completely. And on those days that you don't love yourself, when you don't love your life, when every step is a struggle, when others hate you, remember that he loves you. I think sometimes we're afraid to let people get too close to us for fear that if they knew us better, they wouldn't like us anymore. That's one thing you don't need to worry about with Jesus. He knows you completely, even better than you know yourself. And yet he loves you to the end. Verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Jesus, Judas, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Satan looked for a man to betray Jude, Jesus. 
and had probably cultivated Judas for a long time. That should be a warning not to let the enemy get a toe into your life. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Jesus knew Judas was about to betray him. Again, we see his omniscience. We also see his sovereignty. The Father had given all things into his hands. Jesus was Lord over all. Nothing that was about to happen was out of his control. None of it was an accident. He was not the victim of fate. And this reminds me of Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And he, God, put all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. Now, that is a lot of power. Think about that. All of the power of the universe was given to him. He didn't use that power to impress men or for his own purposes. He used it to bring glory to God the Father. Now, just think if that kind of power was given to a man, how they would abuse that. Jesus did not. Jesus washed Judas' feet even though he knew what Judas was about to do. He could have waited until Judas left and then done the foot washing, but he didn't. What love that was. The presence of evil did not hinder his love. Jesus lived above the circumstances. Could you wash the feet of an enemy? Can you live above the evil in your life? Can you love the unlovely? We are to love people who do not appreciate our love, who do not reciprocate in kind, who are demanding, think of themselves as entitled. It is tempting to associate only with those who share our worldview because there's comfort in common ground. Associating with unbelievers does not mean compromising our beliefs or our faith but it is interacting with them in ways that reflects the love of Christ. Not easy, right? But it is our mission. Verse 4, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. People then didn't have nice Nikes or Brooks or Louboutins or Manolos or Clarks, whatever your jam is. They didn't have cushy socks. They were either barefoot or they wore sandals. They didn't walk around with little doggy poop bags collecting the refuge off the streets. They didn't have a nice paved trail like the Monon. Have you ever watched a parade? where they have a team of horses, and then there's a marching band afterwards, and you're sitting there thinking, no, no, don't step there. Um, You know, these people walk the dusty, filthy streets with sandals on. Their feet got dirty and stinky. But Jesus got a basin of water and washed the feet of his men. That was the job of a servant. 
Luke 22 tells us, a dispute arose over among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. They were thinking about who was going to be Jesus' right-hand man in his coming reign, and then Jesus washed their feet. That was an extreme act of servanthood. According to the Jewish laws and traditions regarding the relationship between a teacher and his disciples, a teacher had no right to demand or expect that his disciples would wash his feet. It was absolutely unthinkable that the master would wash his disciples' feet. There's a lot of symbolism in verses 4 and 5. He laid aside his garment. This is the same verb that's going to be used later as he laid down his life. Jesus laid aside the garments of glory to come and dwell among us. As he wrapped himself in a towel, so he wrapped his divinity in human flesh. And we read the Philippians 2, 5 to 8 in our lesson, having this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus rose in eternity past from the banquet he enjoyed with the Father and the Spirit, willing to take on himself the form of a man. It wasn't like there was a committee of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they voted on who to go, and Jesus lost two to one. They didn't play rock, paper, scissors, and he lost. But he chose to leave the intimacy of heaven to invade time and space in order to redeem mankind. In chapter 12, Jesus had his feet anointed. And we know Jesus literally got his feet dirty, but symbolically, he did not pick up sin, dirt, as he walked through the world. The world did not taint him. He contracted no defilement from the world. Feet in the Bible often speak of the walk of a person. Roman 10, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Proverbs 4, ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. The disciples, just as we do, were in contact every day with sin in the world. And so we also need to see the symbolism of washing their feet with water. What is water a symbol of? The word. John 15, 3, Jesus said, You are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. We are washed, said Paul in Ephesians 5, by the water of the word. So wrapped in that tail, towel of human frailty, Jesus poured out his word to us, just as pure, clean water cleanses our bodies, God's written word washes us clean down deep in our souls. It purifies our thoughts, it scrubs our motives, and cleanses our conscience as we absorb it and obey its truths. Now, Peter did not understand that this was a teaching moment. Verse 6, 
he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. Peter declined Jesus washing his feet. Do you wash my feet? He sounds humble, but I think he's a little arrogant. He thought he knew better than Jesus what was appropriate. Jesus urged him to trust and obey. He didn't get it at the time, but he would later. Peter, the ever impetuous one, was corrected by Jesus and still didn't yield. Ignorance is often followed by obstinacy. You shall never wash my feet. Yes, Peter is unworthy. That's the whole point. He is also unworthy of having his sins washed away by the blood of Jesus, as are we. So how do you react when you are corrected? Do you get obstinate? Do you dig your heels in deeper? Or do you take correction to the Lord to see if there's any truth in it? If there is any truth, then you need to correct your path. If not, let it go and keep on walking. There have been times in my life when I have had faults pointed out. It's never a fun experience. As a leader in Bible studies here and at church, there are the end-of-the-year evaluations. They are useful, but they can be painful. My first reaction is usually to decide I should not be leading. I'm not good at this. I compare myself to other leaders and think, they're so good at this. What in the world am I thinking I'm doing? Or I can make excuses. They have no idea what's going on in my life. Both are totally wrong reactions. With, times I, with time, I can get over the feeling of being a failure and say, okay, God, what do I need to do? How can I change? How can I be a better leader? So Jesus rebuked Peter, and he said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter viewed the situation as totally unacceptable socially. Jesus replied on a spiritual, symbolic level. Jesus was talking about spiritual cleansing. Unless Jesus washed their sins away, they had no real relationship with him. Peter was thinking literally. If failure to submit to Jesus washing his feet meant the termination of their relationship, then give me a bath. Peter missed the point. You have no share with me. Peter was not going to lose his salvation, but he would not be part of the team. He wouldn't be a part of Jesus' ministry. These men were to start the church. They couldn't be effective leaders without understanding servanthood. That's what Jesus was trying to teach them. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. When a person believes in Jesus, God removes the guilt for sins committed in the past, in the present, in the future. Jesus spoke of this forgiveness as a total bath. After a person believes in Jesus, 
They still commit sins, and those sins hinder their fellowship with God. Washing of feet was symbolic of confessing of sins. Peter had already bathed. He believed in Jesus, but he needed daily confession. Like Peter, we all get dirty as we walk through life. So why is confession important? Well, let me give you three reasons, and I know that there's many, many more. But number one, confession helps us appreciate the cross. If we confess sin 10, 20, 30 times a day, we see ourselves as sinners and appreciate more what Jesus did for us. He died for that sin and that sin and that sin. When we confess every sin, we will see that we really are wretched sinners. Number two, confession helps us to remember God's grace and mercy. If we don't confess, we can think we're pretty good. We can do this life on our own. Jesus is lucky to have me on his team. But if we're confessing sins minute by minute, then we remember Lamentations 3.22, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His great mercy is just amazing. Number three, confession keeps the enemy from building strongholds in our lives. 2 Corinthians 10.4, for the weapons of our welfare, of our warfare, are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Unconfessed sin gives the enemy bricks to build strongholds. He can manipulate you in those strongholds until what began as a thought, it grows into an action, then it becomes an addiction, a habit, a part of your life, a rut so deep that it is hard to steer out of. Have you ever asked yourself, how did I get here? How did I get so caught up in this attitude or that sin? Sometimes we come to the point where we don't think we need to confess or that we don't want to confess because we're enjoying that sin so much. So keep a short list with God. As Anne used to say, I fess them as I does them. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus knew Judas had never had the bath. He had never believed. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? Jesus resumed his seat at the table when he was done. That has to make us think of Jesus sitting down at the right hand of God when his work was done here. He completed his task on earth. Do you understand the example I set for you? Jesus asked his disciples, for it would only be in understanding what he had done for them, that they would be able to do the same thing for others. Jesus taught by deeds. He was not asking about the actual foot washing. They knew he washed their feet, but did they understand the significance of what he had done? Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, 
you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. It's a pattern that you also should do just as I have done to you. In 1891, Charles Spurgeon gave a sermon where he said several times, what would Jesus do? He actually quoted from a book written around 1420 called The Imitation of Christ. What would Jesus do from the 1420? So the WWJD movement in the 1990s was not a new concept. What would Jesus do? We are told here what Jesus would do in every circumstance. He would be a servant. That should be the filter of our life, to be a servant like Jesus was. But Jesus' example was far more costly than washing feet. It didn't just involve a basin of water and a towel. It involved the giving of his life. The washing of feet is not just a ritual to imitate. Our problem is not the lack of opportunities to wash feet. It is our unwillingness to see and seize these opportunities. It's too easy to make excuses, turn our way to turn our eyes away from those who need the nitty-gritty help. We prefer to do the easy serving, the serving that doesn't cost us. There's a principle here that no matter how bad things are, we have no excuse not to serve others. We tend to get our eyes on ourselves and on our problems, and we don't even see the needs of others. Nor are we in the right frame of mind to help others, even if we see those needs. We have a natural tendency to be selfish. Instead, we need to be selfless. Verses 16 to 20 start with a truly, truly, and end with a truly, truly. Remember what truly, truly means? It means pay attention, listen up. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a master greater than the one who sent him. Since their master had humbled himself and washed their feet, so should the disciple not think it was beneath him to serve. If you know these things, and these things refers to what was just being taught on being a servant, but, you know, knowing and doing are often two different things, right? Blessed are you if you do them. Blessed doesn't mean that God's going to make you happy. I think our culture has hijacked that term, have a blessed day. But it means inner joy. It means favor with God, his approval. Verse 18, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. He's not talking about being chosen for salvation, but chosen to, for apostleship. He's talking to his disciples here. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. The choosing of Judas for a disciple was not an accident. Judas, Jesus did not choose wrongly. He chose to fulfill scripture. He wanted the disciples to understand all of this was prophesied ahead of time. He wanted them to know they would not get it at the time, but in hindsight, they would see clearly. 
they would believe when the prophecies were fulfilled. His disciples would then know that Jesus had been in full control, bringing about what God the Father had purposed from past eternity. In his earthly sojourn, Jesus was always in control. He was never a helpless victim. Prophecy is not given to us so that we can know exactly what's going to happen in the future. Much prophecy is written so that when God brings about his plans and his purposes, we realize that he's already told this, told us what would happen, and it happened just as he said it would. Prophecy is one way that God promotes and protects his glory. He tells us what he's going to do ahead of time so that when he does it, we recognize that it's all his doing. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I receive, no, receives the one I send, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. Jesus was getting them ready for the Great Commission. He was going to send them out into the world. The ones that believed the message the disciples took when they received Jesus. When they received the message, they received Jesus. Whoever received Jesus received the Father who sent him. Verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This is the third time in the book of John we've seen this term, troubled. It was at the death of Lazarus. He was greatly troubled. He was face to face with the consequence of sin, which was death. We saw it again when he said his hour had come. His death would involve bearing God's wrath. I don't think we can even begin with our feeble minds what it would be like to bear the wrath of God. And then here, Jesus was troubled. He was troubled because he loved Judas. He was troubled because he hated sin, and sin incarnate was sitting next to him. He was troubled because he knew Judas' eternal destiny was hell. Jesus knew what hell was like. We can only imagine the horror of hell. Jesus was leaving the light of the world and stepping into the darkness of hell. It's a horrifying thought. Matthew's account of this incident tells us, and they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? They questioned themselves. They didn't even suspect Judas. If they, especially Peter, had known, they would have stopped him. Judas was the best had the best example, he had the greatest teacher, and he was still lost. Which makes me ask myself, who is there around me that I think is a believer and they are not? Anne used to say, don't let someone who claims to be a Christian keep you from leading them to Christ. Not a direct quote, but you get the gist of it. There are wolves in sheep's clothing around us. Peter motioned to John and told him to ask Jesus who it was. Jesus said, the one who I give the dip morsel to. And I think the conversation must have continued, and then Jesus gave Judas the morsel. I think Jude, Jesus made eye contact with Judas and was giving Judas that last chance to make a final decision. Instead of repenting, Judas 
resisted. And this resistance opened the way for Satan to take control of him in a stronger way because of his persistent unbelief. The betrayal was probably something Judas had been mulling over for a period of time. He knew a reward had been offered by the rulers. If anyone would reveal the whereabouts of Jesus, there was reward. And it's not sinful to be tempted to sin. Jesus was tempted by Satan. But there comes a moment when in the heart, the conscious decision is made to yield to temptation. James tells us that a man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lusts and entice. And when lusts have conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. So there comes the moment of decision when one says, I'll do it. So his decision was made. Judas was dismissed. The others thought it was innocent. They thought he was going to go run an errand. But Jesus was in control of the timing. Now that Judas was gone, Jesus could speak intimately and more openly to the other disciples. I think John purposely puts Peter and Judas side by side in this chapter. So again, we'll see the comparison. Judas was an unbeliever who betrayed the Lord of glory. Peter was a believer who denied his Lord. Well, what's the difference? All the difference. In some ways, Judas looks like Mr. Perfect in the New Testament, up until the time he betrayed the Lord. Repeatedly in the Gospels, we see Peter messing up, doing or saying the wrong thing. But while Peter often sinned, each occasion of sin was a point of repentance and return. It is true, Peter failed many times, just as we do, but each failure was a point of return. For Judas, his apparent failures seemed to be few, but despite all the opportunities he was given to repent and turn to the Lord, he never did. Far better to fail often and return to the Lord than to appear to do well and never turn to him at all. What a difference there is between Peter, whose sins were a point of return, and this final sin of Judas, and his point of no return. Verse 30, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So you have to see that light, dark motive again here in John. For John, Jesus is the light of the world. Those who believe in him come to the light and walk in the light. At the opposite extreme is Judas, who rejected Jesus. He cast cast his lot with the powers of darkness. He departed into the darkness and was swallowed up by it. Verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, "Now Now is the Son of Man glorified. God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him... God will also glorify him in himself and glory, glorify him once again. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus made five references to glory in those two verses. With good reason, 
The world looked at the cross and can only say humiliated, disgraced, cursed. Jesus looked at the cross and knowing what would be accomplished could truthfully say glorified. The glorification of Jesus was the ultimate goal of history. He welcomed it willingly, triumphantly. It came at a high price. It started at the cross, but it didn't end there. He brought glory to the Father by finishing the work God gave him to do. And we'll read more about that in chapter 17. This is also how we glorify the Father, by doing the work he has given us to do. We should be teaching others. We should be serving. We should be messengers of the gospel. Wake up every morning and ask God what you can do for him that day. I have so many Ann-isms floating around in my head, and she would say, we should get up in the morning reporting for duty, Lord. Now, the disciples had to be feeling a little abandoned by Jesus' words, where I am going, you cannot come. They had left everything to follow Jesus, and now he was leaving. They expected to be high-ranking officials in his government when he took political control of Israel as Messiah. After three years... They're now hearing him say he's going to leave. Verse 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my my disciples if you have loved one for another. The Jews would have known Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. They knew, love God, love your neighbor. So why is this a new commandment? Well, there are two Greek words that mean new. One means um, new in reference to time, and that's not the one that he uses. This word for new meant new in quality. They had a higher standard now. They were to love as Jesus had loved them. It was also part of the new covenant that he's going to ratify with his blood. God had promised a new covenant enabling his people to love by transforming their hearts and their minds. Ezekiel 36, 24 to 26. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Or also in Jeremiah 31:33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be my, their God, and they will be my people. It is only by God's transforming grace that believers can love one another as Jesus has loved them. There's a little ditty that says, To live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's a different story. People can be hard to love, but Jesus' love was costly. It was a commitment. It was visible actions. 
The commandment was also new because a new community is going to be established at his death and resurrection. This commandment was given to the church, not to Israel. Love for one another would identify them as his disciples. Remember the song? They will know we are Christians by our love. You don't want me singing. Um, They will know we are Christians by our love. Loving our neighbor must be a priority. We spend time on what we consider to be important, right? It's all a matter of choice. 1 Corinthians 13.3 tells us, If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. All things must be done in love, or it is worthless in view of eternity. It has to pass through that fine filter of love. Believers are God's advertisement to a watching society. Love values the other person. It's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. William Barclay defined love as the spirit in the heart that will never seek anything but the highest good of its fellow man. How often are we out for our own highest good and not somebody else's? C.S. Lewis, in a book called The Four Loves, described the vulnerable nature of love. To love is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. Instead, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Love comes at a cost. It takes a chance. It leaves an impression on another soul. Often these acts are never forgotten. Have you ever had someone to say to, say to you, I remember when you did such and such for me. It meant so much to me. I remember when you did this or when you did that. Those things stick in a person's mind. True love costs. I read the statement, if there is no cost, there is no love. I'm going to have to think about that. I think there is truth in that. Peter was still locked in on verse 33. When Jesus had said, where I am going, you cannot come, verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will lay down, you will lay down. Let's try this again. I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And Jesus answers Peter's question later in chapter 14. Peter underestimated his own weakness. I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus said, will you lay down your life for me? We know Peter eventually will lay down his life for the Lord, but he had some rocky ground to cover between now and then. The more I know me, the more I am amazed Jesus loves me. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones said, It is the people who have the deepest understanding of sin and what it means. They are the ones who have the greatest understanding and appreciation of the love and the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God. A superficial view of sin leads to a superficial view of salvation and to a superficial view of everything else. Do we really see the absolute travesty of sin against the holy God? So we return to the initial theme. Is Jesus your rabbi? Is he just your teacher? Or is he your Lord? Are you happy to sit here and listen and do your lesson and walk away unchanged? Or do you choose to love like he loved? Are you willing to serve as he served? Are you willing to make him Lord of your life? Not just a little here and a little there. If you think about it, apart from God's grace, we are just like Judas. On our own, none of us would choose Jesus. Praise him that he chooses us. He loves us in a radical way. Are you willing to be radical too? Let me close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, help us to love as you loved us. Pray that you would open our eyes, help us to see those around us that we can serve with a loving heart, even when that serving is hard, when it's unpleasant, when it's uncomfortable. Let us do it with the right attitude. Pray that you would help us to walk away from your word as changed women. Change us deep down into our souls. Let your word wash over us and cleanse us. Most of all, we thank you for your sacrificial life, your sacrificial death, and what a joy that is that you were resurrected. Help us to be wholly devoted to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good week, ladies.